0: I, for one, shall not be petty and talk about state-of-origin results. What's far more important is that New South Wales won the national ha- uh, ping-pong championship. So there you go, in 1954. But anyway, um, so uh, oh, I've got some news that I'm just going to share with you all. But on Friday, Beth and I became first-time grandparents. So that's very <laughs> exciting. So... Um, such a crazy feeling, and those of you who are grandparents would know that. Um, but yeah, a little, uh, little boy called Caspian, uh, and yes, he is named from Caspian from the Narnia Chronicles, uh, and so in the family, though, he's already known as Capsicum, uh, and, and that's probably going to stay, so that's how it is. All right, um, all those details which you women want to ask, just ask Beth later, because I don't know any of them. How long, how heavy, whatever. All right. Um, I have a friend who is quite literally a rocket scientist, which is a pretty cool-sounding job. Uh, I once asked him to send me one of his exams when he was doing a PhD in mathematics. To this day, I can't see the question. There's a whole lot of, like, letters, numbers, and brackets... And that's it. Um, How can you have a question without words? Uh, Anyway, the point being, though, that when he sees that, it says something. When I see that, it says absolutely nothing. Now, any kind of specialized field is like that. You know, I really love those moments when I'm with Beth and she gets together with other nurses or doctors. And then they start to share stories together. And it's, you know, oh, wasn't it so funny the other day when that person with ABC got mixed up with XYZ and the nun recorded it as an EGT and they're all like, so funny. And you're like, I have, yeah, what on earth are you guys talking about? This happens in every field. There's a sort of language which people understand and use, but if you're not from that, you've got no concept of what they're talking about. That's especially true when it comes to spiritual things. It's especially true when it comes to knowing the Word of God, which is a living Word, and we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. But we can see it in other, smaller ways. Now, the best example I can think of outside of the Scriptures, and I've shared this before, but it's so good, I'm just going to share it again, is the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, you can read that series of books either as a child or as an adult, and it can be an entertaining story with lions and Uh, high sea adventures and and duffel puds and so on so forth and it can just be a really fun read or you can have your kind of eyes opened and read it for this deep theological journey through the Christian life which C.S. Lewis included in the story and it's amazing how many people miss that entirely and don't realize the entirety of the series is a series of of parables of the Christian life. And so again, I thought I would just read one of them because I think it's just so worth reading. Uh, This is a little scene from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, and it also contains what I think is one of the finest ever opening lines to a book in the English language ever written. So, I just thought I'd include that. Listen to this. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. How good good is that line? Anyway, now, some context. Eustace was a selfish, arrogant, self-serving boy who only cares about himself Uh, He ends up on an island and there's a dragon's hoard of treasure and he stuffs his pockets with all of the treasure and he puts a gold bracelet on his arm and the gold bracelet turns him into a dragon. Uh, He quickly gets upset about being a dragon because he's cut off from everyone and everyone wants to kill him. Uh, But there's nothing he can do to stop himself from that point being a dragon. You can't get the bracelet off. Now, the dragon is actually an illustration from C.S. Lewis of our sinful nature revealed. So that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. The dragon represents the sin that you and I are born with, and it represents that being exposed for all to see. So the dragon is our sin nature revealed. And so in the book, Eustace is upset at this sin nature, and so he begins to save himself. He thinks he can do it himself. Many people in the world think they can save themselves. So, in the book, he begins to tear off the dragon skin. And every time he tears it off through his own self effort, there's another dragon underneath. He cannot deal with his own sin nature. Right? This is clearly in the book. So, let's pick up now an actual part of the story. Aslan appears, and Aslan in the Chronicles is who? Jesus. Right through the Chronicles, Aslan represents Jesus. So Aslan turns up, and this is what we read. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. Listen to this next part. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Right, When Jesus first brings you to a recognition of your true sinful nature, it cuts to the heart, doesn't it? That's what he's saying. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I'd had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, I became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. Only Jesus can change our sinful nature from that of a dragon born of sin to that of a child made whole and new, born again. The pain of Jesus' first tear the depths of sin, the sweet release of salvation, and a picture of baptism. All there in C.S. Lewis's brilliant story. It's amazing, isn't it? How many people have read it and never seen what C.S. Lewis is truly writing about? I'll tell you how he finishes that little passage and think about your own Christian life. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that From that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice, the cure had begun. Anyone sound like your transformation in Christ, anyone? Isn't that amazing? And the whole of the book is written like that. And so many people miss it entirely. And that kind of just helps us understand what we're going to be reading in our passage this morning. There's one way to read the passage that we're about to read, or there's one way to understand the Bible, and there's a whole nother one that must be revealed by God. So, if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to John 16, and we're going to read 25 to 33. That's our passage this morning, and where we're up to in the Gospel of John. John 16, 25 to 33. I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. The time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Look, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus responded to them, Do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. You know, I'm not alone because the Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Amen. So Jesus straight up says, I have said these things in figures of speech. Now, this Greek word employed here doesn't necessarily mean figures of speech. It means that the things Jesus have said have been unclear. So Jesus more or less says, I have been saying things to you which are not clear. And boy, we've seen that in the journey, haven't we? The disciples have not got it. Jesus has explained it again and again and again and they have not been able to grasp the depth and the truth of what Jesus is telling them. So... Jesus has been saying this in a way that is unclear to them. That's true. But the question I ask you is, why is it unclear to them? The things that Jesus has been saying, are they unclear to you? Anyone? No. Jesus has been saying things pretty straightforward, hasn't he? I'm about to go to the cross. Then I'll be resurrected. I'll appear to you. Then I'll go to the Father. They're abundantly clear. They're not hard things for us to grasp. So why is Jesus saying to them, I've been saying things which aren't clear to you? Well, there's a couple of reasons, isn't there? We talked about the fact the disciples had wrong expectations. Jesus didn't fit the bill of who they wanted him to be, so therefore they couldn't understand who he actually was. They were not filled with the Holy Spirit who makes the truth of Christ known to us. So without the Spirit, Uh, With wrong expectation, things that actually are clear were unable to be understood. It's a bit like the Chronicles of Narnia, as I said. What is incredibly unclear to many people, once they have the truth pointed out to them, once they understand the perspective, begin to see it in a whole different light. See, these things were not clear to the disciples. but They're so clear to us because... Jesus has been resurrected, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the truth becomes known, right? So it's unclear to them, but it's clear to us. Now, a quick aside about that. We have the Holy Spirit who reveals the truth of God's Word to us, right? Right? Gee, you're a quiet bunch, aren't you? Thank you. Um, Now, we still, though, have to do work. We have this spirit who makes the truth of God's Word known, but we still have to cross a different language barrier. We still have to read in context. We still have to understand the culture in which it was written. really, really quick example in our Bible. This is just a bit of a fun one for you, but the chapters and verse numbers aren't in the original letters. We put them in. In fact, a lot of them were put in by a monk who was on a horse journey. And some of them are in such weird places, I think sometimes he hit a bump and just put one in there and went, oh, I'll just leave it, it's too hard to write again. Um, so all of those are our inserts to make things easy to find, but they weren't in the originals. Even that can change the way we read things. So we're going to be careful to read in context. So really quickly, Matthew 16, 28 says... Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that's a very controversial verse. It's got all kinds of interpretations about it to do with end times and all kinds of stuff, right? Some of you won't taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's the end of 16. We put that end there. If you get rid of that and just read straight in context, it says... Some of you will not taste death until you see me coming in my kingdom. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, his brother John, led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with them. So we've got some of you, Peter, James, and John, will see me come in my kingdom, right, before you taste death. So three of them did. They saw Christ displayed in all of His glory, talking to the dead heroes of the faith from the past, reigning over all. You put the break in there, though, and suddenly it becomes way more difficult to understand. you get what I'm saying? We have to put the work in. Yes, the Spirit helps us understand, but we've got to put the work in to understand culture, context, etc., etc. That is what I'm talking about. All of Scripture is God-breathed we are going to put the work into understanding the Word of God. You know, all of your Bible, not just the bits with red letters, are equally the Word of God. And we have to put the work into knowing what it means. I once preached a sermon. uh, I was standing at the back of a church, not this church, and a guy came up to me and said, thank you, shook my hand and said, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard. So it's a gift of encouragement. Um, And I said, okay, why is that? And he said, um because you only quoted from Paul and not from Jesus. To which I said, well, that's one of the oldest heresies going. And we didn't get on very well. But anyway, um, but my point is, it's all the Word of God. It's all God breathed, and we have to put the work in to understanding the Word of God. Church, can I encourage you, put the work in to know the truth of what He is saying. Then in verses 26 and 27 of our passage, we learn something amazing and profound for us to understand. You will ask in Jesus' name, but sometimes we kind of get this in our head, that does not mean that Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father saying, oh, would they just shut up? All of this having to be repeated by me to the Father is so annoying. Right? It's not that we have to go through Jesus to get to the Father. The Bible says that God so loved the world, he sent the Son. The word that Jesus gives us here is that the Father loves us because we love the Son. What am I telling you? Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? We pray in the name of Jesus because Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. That was his great and finished mediatorial work. We don't pray in the name of the Son because we don't have access to the Father now. No, the Father loves you. We pray in the name of the Son because He stands forever as our eternal reminder of what He did to pay the full penalty of your sin. Now this is an important thing to get right. There are many people from different church backgrounds who honestly have a view that the Father is just waiting to punish and smite us, and Jesus is in heaven pinning His arms back, kind of going, no, don't do it, I died for them. Right? This is the image. The Father is angry and wanting to punish us, and Christ is good and standing between the two. No. In the eyes of the Father, Jesus paid the full penalty of your sin if you put your faith in Him. In the eyes of the Father, you are now perfected forevermore through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In the eyes of the Father, not only you are perfected, but you are also loved because you love the Son whom the Father loves. You are loved by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why does this matter? When you sin, and you will, don't use the wrath of God as an excuse to stay away from God. If you are His... Then you are loved, your debt has been paid, simply repent and come back to the Father who loves you, right? There's no excuse. Father, Son, and Spirit, they love you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can approach the Father because of what the Son has done, right? This is the place that we have now because of Christ. In verse 28, Jesus as simply and plainly as can be summarizes kind of who he is in our passage, John 16:28. I came from the Father. He makes this bold, plain statement. He just summarizes what we've read right through John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, Jesus, God in the flesh. Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. That's known as the incarnation. God taking on flesh. So Jesus is just summarizing the full mission of Jesus, really. I came from the Father. In the beginning was the Word. I've come into the world. I've taken on flesh, humbled himself by taking on the form of a man. And shortly he will die, paying the penalty of our sin, and he will go back to the Father, where he will reign with him forevermore. So a wonderful summary statement of who Jesus is, what he's done, and where he is going. And then we get this from the disciples. This is their reaction to that summary statement. His disciples said, Look, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God and then you preach a message and you talk to people afterwards and someone comes up to you to thank you for the message that you preached and the thing they thank you for is the exact opposite of what you said. That's a confusing place to be and it's really hard to know how to respond to Uh, and it happens fairly often, right? That people somehow hear something that they wanted to hear even if you didn't say it. Again, we must put in the work to understand the intent of what the Bible writers were saying. We must listen hard to get things in context and not bring in our own interpretation. It breaks my heart that we can have people who can listen to us work through like a book of John. How long have we been in John for now? A year and a half They can listen to us verse by verse working through the book of John and then go home and listen to some other out-of-context charlatan preacher, Furtick or someone like that, and be just as satisfied. It just blows my mind. How is it you can go, I love listening to the Bible and I love listening to someone who preaches whatever rubbish comes out of their head. Can I appeal to you, church, don't do this. Don't. The Word of God must be taught as it's taught in the Word, in context, trying to find what the author's original intent was. That is how you read the Word of God. Don't listen to any preacher, any preacher, myself included, who stands up and says, I'm preaching from the Bible and simply tags a verse on to their own thoughts. No. Examine, interpret, Get stuck into the Word of God. If you leave this church one day because you moved town or because you're upset at something I probably did do wrong, um, okay, but find a church that teaches the Word of God. Not mentions the Word of God, but teaches the Word of God. Please. See, this is what Jesus is wrestling with right here. This is what he's just told them. They do not understand. He says that. You haven't understood the things I've been saying. It has not been clear to you. And what's their straightaway response to what Jesus has said? Don't miss it. Oh, now we understand. Jesus has literally just said, you guys don't understand. And their response is, now we understand. But do you get the irony of this? This is hilarious right at this point in time. You guys don't get it. A time is coming when you will. One second later. Now that time's here, Jesus, we've got it. Right? It's literally right there in your text. This is hilarious about what he's saying right now. And what is Jesus' response to them? Did you get it? It's one of absolute irony. Jesus straight up says, basically says to them, um, where is it here? Um... Do you now believe? Right? Don't read that as a a simple... That is completely a sarcastic, ironic response. Really? Really? So now you guys believe. I make one simple summary statement and now you guys are all over it. Uh, That is what Jesus is actually responding with, right? Do you now believe? One of the things John has done throughout this gospel is highlight that there are two different forms of belief. Now, for those of you who've been here on this journey, we've seen that. There are two different forms of belief. There is one that saves and one that leads to damnation. The one that saves is a belief that includes death to your old life. It is a belief and lordship of Christ. Jesus becomes your master. It is the person who is being transformed by the Spirit and seeking to bring all of their life under the lordship of Christ. Jesus, you are my life. The life I live in the body, I live in you and for you. You decide where I serve in the church. You decide whether and who I will marry. You decide where I live. You are my king and my whole life is yours to do with whatever you want to. That is belief that saves the lordship of Christ over my whole life. Then there is a different belief which John has been mentioning. Jesus sounds wonderful. I love some Jesus on the side. I have a plan for my life and Jesus to make it secure. I have my career and Jesus to make it succeed. I have Jesus, but he better not ask me to do anything I don't like or stop me doing the things I do. That's not Jesus. That's like totally wrong. I feel triggered even talking about it. Right? That is the utter crap being sprouted out there today in so many places, and that is a belief that leads to damnation. He is Lord. You are not. He is King. You are not. He makes the rules. You do not. He has life in and of himself, and you do not, only in the lordship of Jesus. Right? A belief that saves and a belief that leads to damnation. Unfortunately, the disciples here had the second belief. The disciples here, oh, Lord, now we believe. And Jesus responds, do you really? Do you really? How does he follow it up? The time is coming when you will all be scattered and you will leave me alone. Right? How do you know that their belief is the second kind? Time is coming when you will all be scattered and leave me alone. The first belief, as I said, is a belief where you acknowledge first that you have died to self. The life I live, I live for Jesus, so I have nothing to fear because I already died and now I have life in Christ, there is nothing to fear. Do you know the most common command in the scriptures? Do not be afraid, right? That is the most common command in the scriptures. Once the disciples are filled with the spirit, they're going to be transformed and most of them will die as martyrs. For in being born again, they died to their old life, and what they've laid down uh, spiritually, they are now ready to give up physically, because that's what it took to come to faith in Jesus. They died to the old life, and now they have life in Him. Right? That is saving faith. How does Jesus follow it up? I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace because you are included in Christ, because your salvation is secured in Christ, because your eternity with Him is unshakable in Christ. You will have suffering in this world says Jesus. Accept it. We will suffer. We will face persecution. Our bodies will decay. There will be poverty. There will be children rebelling. Jesus says, but you, your victory in me is guaranteed, so be courageous. I've conquered the world. You will suffer, says Jesus, but be courageous. Do not give in to fear, but get on with the mission of God. Why? Because Jesus has won the victory. Sin and death have been defeated, and when you die, if you are Christ's, you go to be with Him. Can Can we genuinely think about this? What is your response to a hostile government? It should, should not be giving into fear, but courage to fulfill the Great Commission. Right? It should not be fear, but courage to do the mission we're called to. Because the worst thing that can happen is we die, and yet we already gave up our life to be born again with Christ. If we were to think of the last couple of years of COVID and took it as a test case, what would it say about you? Did you give in to fear? Hiding away? Justifying it by being prudent? Or did you simply see it as an opportunity to share the gospel with people who should be fearful? those who haven't already died to this world and its desires and who only have damnation ahead of them. When Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain was a truth he not only spoke but he lived by and it enabled him to press forward in the mission of the gospel into many places where the risk of death was incredibly high. You probably don't have the same call as Paul but you should have the same hope because Christ has conquered the world. As a Christian, in every trial or difficulty we face, here are three questions we should ask in order of priority. Right? Three questions we should ask as Christians in order of priority. First question in every trial or difficulty How can I glorify Jesus in this? Right? That's our first question. How can this result in the glory of Christ? Whatever obstacle, whatever trial, whatever difficulty it is, how can this be used to bring glory to Jesus? Because I've died to this life, I now live for my life in Him, the one who gave His life for me, and I want all of my life to give Him glory. So question one, how can this be used for His glory? Question two, in every trial and difficulty... How can I serve others in this and share them the gospel of Christ? Right? Second question. First one is, how do I glorify Jesus? Second question is, how do I serve others in the midst of this trial? How is it I can use this as an opportunity to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ? Thirdly, thirdly in order of importance... Are there steps I can take to not needlessly throw away my life? Right? That's the third one. Firstly, how do I glorify Jesus? Secondly, how do I serve others? Thirdly, I think about myself. Right? Why? Because I died to this life and I now live my life for the glory of Jesus Christ. Right? That is the gospel, and that is belief that saves. That's the order we go through as a Christian. The challenge is clear, isn't it? Have we died to this life? Right? Have we already forsaken, given up the world and its desires, and taken courage? Because although Jesus said we will suffer, he has conquered the world. And our life is guaranteed. Church, give up your life now. Live in Christ. And you will have peace in the trial. Courage for the mission. For Jesus has conquered the world. That is his promise, and we need to live in light of that truth. Let's pray. Lord, the things that were not clear in your word to the disciples are clear to us who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who is making known the truths of Christ to us. Lord, when your word tells us so clearly, you will suffer. But be courageous, because Christ has conquered the world. Lord, it just tells us that we might suffer, but we need to show courage and get on with the great commission. Get on with glorifying Christ of Uh, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching you everything that you've commanded us. Get on with the plans and purposes of Christ because you have conquered sin and death and our life with you is guaranteed. Lord, can you please help us live in light of that truth? Lord, that when we read a verse like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, can we actually live that out? Lord, help us forsake the world and its treasures. Help us to live as though Christ is enough. Thank you.